Pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Good to see everybody this morning. As you're well aware, we've been teaching on end times for about eight weeks. Now this will be the eighth week. And uh, what's the purpose of all this teaching on the end time? Well, number one, we're in the end time, so it's time to teach it. And number two, I'm trying to stir up an excitement in the body of Christ because we're getting ready to see the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We're getting ready to see Jesus Christ, our Savior, Face to face. And that should get us excited. But I don't see that excitement in the church. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we, we talked about several different things that point to the end, end times. And one of them was the catching away or the rapture of the church, which should really get us excited. But it doesn't for some reason. I know that maybe it has been a lot of teaching over the years about it. Maybe that's the reason. But I'm telling you, that's an exciting time. Our bodies are going to be changed, and we're going to take off like rockets and meet the Lord in the air. This isn't a fairy tale. This is something that's really going to happen. And I know some people are apprehensive about this happening, especially I see that in the younger folks. You know, they think, well, I didn't get everything accomplished that I wanted to get accomplished. And, you know, I wanted to get married, and I wanted to drive a car, and I wanted to be able to vote, and I wanted to be able to do this and raise kids and everything. Hey, it's not over. That's just the beginning. You don't think you have enough time? How about all of eternity? You'll have all of eternity to get all these things done that you wanted to do. Amen. These are exciting times. We're the generation that was chosen to be here to usher in the coming of Christ. That's an honor. Hallelujah. We should be excited about that. But anyway, I want to spend some more time on this subject this morning because it seems like it's a very misunderstood subject in the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, we have some listeners on Facebook, and, and I know they're all over the place, not just on our feed, but that never even heard of the rapture. And this is something that should never catch the church by surprise. When the rapture occurs, we should be expecting it to happen. We shouldn't be like, oh, my God, what's that? We shouldn't be caught by surprise. We're children of light. We're not stumbling around in darkness. God has revealed these things to us, and he's revealed them for a reason. Yes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But, you know, uh, I, I don't understand it myself, but when that trumpet sounds and that shout comes from heaven, we're going to be translated out of here. We're going to leave this earth, physically leave this earth, and we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and then we're all going to have a giant reunion a gathering together, Miss Shannon, you're going to see your daddy and everybody else that went before you. You're going to see him there. Jesus is bringing them with him. He's not going to wait till we get to heaven to have this reunion. He's bringing them with. We're going to meet him in the air and they're going to escort us to heaven, arm in arm, hand in hand. And it ain't going to be in no spaceship. Hallelujah. It's going to be a supernatural event. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is what we need to know because 
we can't be transported or translated or whatever you want to call it from here to there unless a change takes place in these mortal bodies. I don't know about you, but we can't live in outer space. Amen. We're here on the earth and we have what's called an earth suit. That's your body. The real you is in this body. You, you had to have this body to live on the earth and be able to express yourself. You got hands and feet and a mouth and ears to listen. And, and you got this body to express yourself while you're here on the earth. Well, if you go into outer space, we got some guys returning today, I think. They got space suits on. Why? They ain't equipped to live in outer space. And so we're going to have to be changed. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 chapter, it will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye. I mean, just one nano of a second, and we're going to be changed. Changed why? Because this mortal has to put on immortality. We can't go into outer space the way we are. And it's not talking about the rapture happening in a moment in the blink of an eye. It's talking about us being changed in a moment in the blink of an eye. He said, when the last trumpet is blown, we'll be changed. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died, those that died in Christ, they're going to be raised to live forever. And we who are living will be transformed. We don't have to die. Some people are going to see the Lord without ever having to die. Never taste the sting of death. You'll be transformed. You'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And he said, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immoral mortal bodies. Hallelujah. And there is no doubt about the rapture. I mean, there's no scriptures more clear than that of the rapture. The scriptures are very precise and very specific about the rapture of the church. It's not a secret. It's not something that was done in a corner. The Apostle Paul even tells us that God wants us to know about the rapture. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, he starts out by saying, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. He doesn't want us ignorant of this subject. He wants us to be knowledgeable of the rapture of the church. He wants us to be knowledgeable that our bodies are going to be changed. He says that uh, we're not like those who have no hope. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have no hope. But Jesus is not only a hope, he's the hope that purifies. He's a purifying hope. Amen. He's our hope. We have a hope. Hallelujah. And then he says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus or have died in Jesus will God bring with him. That's why I said he's bringing them back with him when he comes to get to church. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, they're going before us. We're not going to go before them. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If anybody died believing in Jesus, they will be raised first. And they'll be uh, resurrected, and they'll have a new immortal body, one just like Jesus had. And then in verse 17, it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up 
That word uh, comes from the Greek word and the Latin rendering of rapturo, which means rapture. You won't find the word rapture in the Bible, but this is what it's translated from. He said, we'll be caught up or raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then he ended by saying, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. These words should be comforting, not scary. These words should give us joy, give us great hope and expectation. He says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So it's hard for anyone to deny that there's going to be a rapture. We can't say there's, not, there's no such thing as a rapture. This doctrine of the rapture is a false doctrine. No, you can't say that. It comes right from the word of God. And the scriptures are very precise about it. But one of the questions that's puzzled the church for centuries is when will the rapture occur? I'm not talking about the day or the hour or the time. What I'm talking about is, is it going to happen before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation? And they even have doctrines called pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib raptures. I don't believe in the mid or the post. I believe we're going to be raptured before the seven years of tribulation here. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. If you tell me I have to go through any part of the tribulation period, that's not very comforting for me. I don't want no part of the tribulation. You don't want no part of the tribulation. So if it's going to be comforting to me, I have to know that I'm out of here before that even happens. Amen. Besides, uh, the prophet said that it was going to be, the tribulation was going to be the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble, not the time of the church's trouble. Amen. And, and some Bible scholars and leaders believe it uh, will occur before, some in the middle, some after. And you can see why this would be important, because like I said, we don't want to be here. I believe and have always taught, or at least for a number of years, that the rapture will occur before the tribulation ever begins. And I think the scriptures are very clear and precise about that as well. Turn to the book of Daniel with me, chapter 9. We'll get there in a minute. I'm going to give you a head start. I'm going to show you why I believe we won't be here for the tribulation period. And I also believe that the scriptures show us the exact season of the time that the rapture will occur. Not the day or hour, not the minute, but the season. As a matter of fact, it can be within a day or so. Uh, we can't determine the year, but we can determine the time of the year. That's why Jesus gave us signs. But as we begin reading Daniel, the first thing we have to understand is that Israel was in captivity to the Babylonians at this time, uh, the time of this writing. And in Daniel chapter 8, he had a vision of the end times with special emphasis on the last seven years, the tribulation period and the rise of the Antichrist. And we know this because God sent the angel Gabriel, who was a messenger angel, to Daniel to explain the vision that Daniel had. In Daniel, the eighth chapter, around the 19th verse, it says that, Behold, this is Gabriel talking to him, I will make you know what will be the latter time, the latter time of the indignation of God upon the ungodly. See, it's not upon the church, it's upon the ungodly. 
for it has to do with the time of the end. He told Daniel that this is about the end times. And then in verse 26, he repeats it in a way. He says, the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told you, is true. He says, but seal up the vision, for it has to do with and belongs to the now distant future. He was definitely talking about the end times. He was talking specifically about the, the last seven years, the tribulation period. And so we have to understand that going into this, but this is the distant future. This is the time of the end that the angel Gabriel was telling Daniel about. And he says, seal up the vision because it's not supposed to be revealed till the end. Well, it is being revealed. 10, 15 years ago, we had no revelation like this that we have today. Why? Because it was veiled. It was hidden. It hadn't been revealed yet. God can hold things back from us even when it's right in front of our faces because it's not time to be revealed yet. As a matter of fact, Jesus is all through the Old Testament and prophesied the the exact time he would come to the earth, the exact time and season he'd be crucified and die and rose and buried. And yet it was a mystery to everybody that read it. Why? Wasn't time to be revealed yet. Well, we're in living in the times now where it's time for it to be revealed and God wants it revealed. Amen. He wants us to know. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning these things. God doesn't want us to be ignorant. In the beginning of the ninth chapter, Daniel had learned from reading the word, specifically the book of Jeremiah, he learned the number of years that the Jews were to remain in Babylonian captivity. And that was 70 years. And apparently that time had come and gone, it had already passed, and yet they were still in captivity. And Daniel began to wonder why, because he read in Jeremiah that it was only supposed to last 70 years. And he knows God's word is true. There's a reason why it was extended. And he wanted to know why. In Jeremiah 29, I know I told you to turn to Daniel. Stay there in Daniel. But in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, and we're all familiar with these verses of Scripture. We, we always uh, quote uh, uh, verse 11. But he says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon... I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, the promised land, the place that he exiled them from. And Daniel read that and he says, why are we still here? And then it says in verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans uh, for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. This is my plan for you, Israel. And Daniel's thinking, well, why are we still here? Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. So Daniel knows he needs to call upon the Lord and pray to him. He says, you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. How many knows that the scripture is still true for us today? Yes. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. I'll bring you back to the promised land, and I will restore you. So based on God's promise to Israel, uh, 70 years of captivity, Daniel knew something was wrong because they were still there. 
So Daniel must have realized that Israel hadn't repented for the very thing that caused them to go into captivity. And so Daniel begins to repent first for himself and then for the church, for the Old Testament church, for the people of Israel. Pastor Ed and I have done that before. When we realized something, something was wrong and we weren't moving in the direction we should, we would pray and repent for ourselves, and then we would repent for you, and God allows that. Amen. Some of us need to repent for our families. Amen. God will hear that prayer. We have biblical precedence for it right here. Now, Daniel chapter 9. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. Verse 21 says, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the former vision, chapter 8, remember we talked about that when Gabriel told him that this was going to be about the end time, being caused to fly swiftly, came near to me and touched me about the time of the evening sacrifice. He, Gabriel, instructed me, Daniel, and made me understand. He talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your prayers, the word given an answer went forth. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. He wants us to understand the vision. Seventy weeks of years or 490 years are decreed, mandated upon your people and upon your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish and put an end to transgression, to seal up and make full the measure of sin, to purge away and make expiation and reconciliation for sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, permanent moral and spiritual rectitude in every area and relation, to seal up vision and prophecy and prophet, and to anoint a holy of holies. That's the purpose of the 490 years, especially the last seven years of that 490, which is going to be the tribulation period. And, and, and so he said in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, until the coming of the anointed one, a prince, shall be seven weeks of years, seven times seven, and 62 weeks of years, 62 times seven, which comes to 483 years, it shall be built again with city, square, and moat, but it will be built in troublous times. How many knows the kingdom of God is always built in troublous times? It's not easy to build the kingdom of God. It's not easy to restore people to the kingdom of God. So in other words, from the time that the commandment is given to rebuild Jerusalem, not from the time it's been rebuilt, but as soon as the commandment is given to rebuild it, he says that the time will start, and until Jesus Christ appears, it will be 483 years. Now, remember, 490 was decreed. In other words, God decreed or mandated 490 years for Israel, 
And he says, after the, the command goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem till the time the Messiah comes and is anointed will be 483 years. This is a prophecy of some 2,700 years before Jesus comes. And it's that accurate and that specific that as soon as the announcement is made that the, ten, the Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, he says, count it, 483 years, the Messiah will be anointed. You see how precise God's word is? And uh, then it says, and after the 62 weeks of years shall the anointed one be cut off or killed, crucified, and shall have nothing and no one belonging to and defending him and the people of the other prince. There's another prince now. And that's the Antichrist, who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. Now, it's not talking about a flood of water. It's talking about as quickly as a flood. And even to the end, there shall be war and desolations are decreed. Matthew 24 tells us that there'll be wars and rumors of wars. This is what Jesus was quoting. And then verse 27 says, And he, the other prince, the Antichrist, shall enter into a strong and firm, uh, firm covenant with the many, which is Israel, for one week, seven years. And in the midst of the week, three and a half years into the tribulation period, he shall cause the sacrifice and offering to cease for the remaining three and one half years, and upon the wing or pinnacle of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, which is the Antichrist, until the full determined end is poured out on the desolator, which is also the Antichrist. So that's why some people believe we'll go in the middle of the tribulation period, because the first three and a half years, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and the Antichrist and his kingdoms are going to be jockeying for power and, and uh, rule. And, but outside of that, it's going to be a time of great peace. He's even going to make a peace treaty with Israel. They're going to think he's the Messiah. They don't believe Jesus already came. And so he, they're going to go along with this until in the middle of the tribulation period, he's going to declare himself to be God. He's going to stand in the holy temple and do some type of an abomination that's going to cause the temple to be desecrated. Maybe he'll sacrifice a pig or something like that on the altar, it will desecrate the temple, and then it's going to be all out hell against the Jews. He's going to try to annihilate them just like he did with Hitler. So the last three and a half years is going to be terrible. And so some scholars believe that's when we'll get snatched out of here. I don't believe that. I don't believe we'll be here for any of it. But anyway, God answered that prayer of Daniel's. And in the book of Ezra, it records that God moved on King Cyrus to let the people back into the land and to rebuild Jerusalem. And, and this was really a supernatural event because King Cyrus, a heathen king, even returned all the gold and silver that King Nebuchadnezzar, one of his predecessors, had stolen from the temple when he raised the temple, R-A-Z-E-D, and, and he defeated the Israelites and conquered them and took them off into captivity, he leveled that temple. And he stole all the holy artifacts, the gold cups and things like that. So anyway, that was a miracle that he would return it. So the reason Israel was exiled in the first place was because they had broken the commandments of God. And they committed idolatry. They performed child sacrifice and offered their children to the to the fire god Molech, uh, 
and they performed ritual prostitution. The temples were filled with prostitutes. But what's interesting is how God determined the 490 years and the 70 years that they were in captivity. The length of the exile was set because of their disobedience to the Sabbath. When Israel first came into the promised land, I know it's a little boring, but it will get exciting. When Israel first came into the promised land, God commanded them to farm the land for six years. And he would, during the six years, they would farm and they would reap their crops and everything. And the seventh year, he said, don't farm the land. Let it rest. And, and, and that's a practice that goes on today in some countries because it, it allows the land to regain its nutrients and minerals and everything. He said, leave it desolate for the seventh year. But I promise you, I will give you enough during the six years, and especially in the last year, the sixth year, I'll give you a bumper crop that will not only get you through the seventh year, but get you well into the eighth year until you can plant and have another harvest. And, and not, there's two reasons for this. He wanted the land to have a Sabbath rest, and he wanted to teach Israel to trust him for the provision. But Israel didn't do that. Rather than trust God for the provision, they planted the seventh year every year for 490 years. So that's seven, 70 Sabbaths that they ignored. 70 years of captivity in Babylonia. And the 490 was the, was the total amount of time that the land was violated for the whole 40, 490 years. I mean, seven, uh, every seventh year they planted, so seven times seven is 49. That's 490 years that the land was violated and that God was upset with that. They failed to let the land have her Sabbath rest. And so God says, I'm going to exile you, and I'm going to see to it that the land gets its rest, the 70 years of Sabbath, the seven uh, times seven years that they didn't let it rest. And so while they were in captivity, the land and the city lay desolate, and the land was resting. It got its Sabbath rest. So as a result, God had them defeated, had them led into captivity, and so, but God is so awesome that he not only restored Israel, he also restored to them the 490 years they lost through their disobedience. And that's 490 years of Old Testament time. And so this is what Daniel said in 924, 70 weeks of years, 490 are decreed, appointed, mandated upon your people and upon your holy city, Jerusalem. In other words, Israel, you lost 490 years through your mischief and not obeying me and not letting the land rest. So I'm such a good and awesome God that I'm going to restore that 490 years to you. Uh, and, and who's it for again? It's for the Jews and the holy city, Jerusalem. And what is it for? To finish the rebellion, uh, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. And that's going to happen in the seven years of tribulation. That's the purpose for it. So God promised Israel, the anointed one, the Messiah would come in 483 years from the commandment that went forth to rebuild Jerusalem. And that uh, commandment went forth under King Artaxerxes. 
and the 490-year prophetic clock began to tick. Why? Because the command, when the command went forth, the prophetic clock with the 490 years on it began to tick to count off until the Messiah comes, and that would stop the prophetic clock. 483 years later. He said in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed one, a prince shall be seven weeks of years and 62 weeks. I'll add them up for you. It's 483 years. So the 483 years weren't marked with Jesus' birth. It was marked when he became the Messiah or was recognized as the Messiah. He wasn't born the Messiah. He became the Messiah. And, and so uh, that happened when he made his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem riding on a colt. That's when the people recognized him and accepted him as the Messiah. They knew from the prophecy of Zechariah that Israel's Messiah would make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. They knew that prophecy. And when Jesus come riding into Jerusalem like that, they said, that's our king. That's the Messiah. And at that moment in time is when the prophetic clock stopped at 483 years. Now, the people recognized the prophecy being fulfilled because they began to praise him, shouting, Hosanna in the highest, and blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That was a praise, Hosanna in the highest, was a praise that was reserved for the Messiah only. So the people had to recognize he was the Messiah because they were identifying with him as such. And when Jesus allowed him to praise him, allowed them to praise him, he was acknowledging and declaring that yes, he is the Messiah. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they didn't like that at all. They told Jesus to rebuke his disciples for shouting these messianic praises. That's in Luke 19, 39 and 40 in the Amplified. He says, rebuke your disciples for shouting these messianic praises. And Jesus told them, I tell you, if they keep silent, he said, the very rocks will cry out. If they don't announce that I'm the Messiah, the rocks will cry out and announce my, that I'm the Messiah. And that's the last thing the religious leaders wanted to do was the rocks to cry out because that would have been a definite miracle and everybody would have had to believe that he was the Messiah then because rocks don't cry. They don't have a voice. And so the religious leaders shut up and they figured, let the people holler. We can dispute this later. So anyway, it was exactly 483 since the command to rebuild Jerusalem was issued, 483 years. A short time later, Jesus was crucified, and Daniel's prophecy predicted precisely the time that the anointed one would be cut off or killed. Remember that? That was when, uh, right after he was announced as the Messiah, the clock stops at 483. So uh, God promised Israel 490 years. Well, we're missing seven years here. 
So Jesus was crucified after 483, meaning that God still owes the Jews seven more years of old covenant time. And that's going to be the tribulation period. So what's the logic for that? Well, I mean, he just gave him 490 years in the first place. But when Jesus died and rose from the dead, it ended the old covenant and the new covenant was ushered in. So the clock had to stop because that was the old covenant clock. It was counting old covenant time. And so 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, the church is born and the church age began uh, by stopping the prophetic clock with the 483 years on it because the church age is under new covenant time. God owes them old covenant time. That's why there's going to be sacrifices in the temple and uh, priests in the temple, just like it was in the Old Testament, because Israel's being repaid back Old Testament times. And that temple is in preparation right now. The priests are in school right now. They have a red heifer because the sacrifices have to start with the ashes of a red heifer. They have several red heifers born, that were born in Israel, pure and without spot, ready to be sacrificed. Everything is being prepared. Things that were prophesied in the last days, fish have shown up in the, in the Dead Sea. Right now there's fish. Foxes trampled all over the Temple Mount because it was predicted by the prophets that the foxes would, the temple would be so desolate that the foxes would uh, march around in the temple. That's already happened here last year. Uh, maybe, yeah, I might, it might have even been at the beginning of this year. There's all kinds of things pointing to the return of Christ. There's right now 172 species, not birds, 172 species of predatory birds in Israel right now waiting for the, to, they're the cleanup crew for the Battle of Armageddon. They're the cleanup crew for the Ezekiel 38 and 39 wars. God has them in position right now. How close are we? You tell me. We are close. Everything is being prepared for the end right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I ain't scaring you. I'm trying to get you excited. But anyway, God still owes the Jews seven more years of old covenant time. Once the church is, the church is raptured, the prophetic clock will start up again, and the countdown of the last seven years will begin. That's the rapture of the church. It's, that's when it's going to start counting down. And seven years from there will be the return of Christ. You want to know when the rapture is? Back up seven years. And that's the return of Christ. Amen. Amen. Right, that's the rapture. Now, here's why I believe the rapture occurs before the tribulation period. Remember in Daniel 9.24, Gabriel told Daniel, 70 weeks of years or 490 years are decreed upon your people and upon your holy city, Jerusalem, not on the church. Uh, it's not the time of the church's trouble. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. This time was decreed for the church, all or for the, for the Old Testament people, Israel. The whole 490 years was decreed for Israel. So the church has to be removed before the tribulation, because the church was never a part of the original 483 Old Covenant years, and it can't be a part of the last of the 490, the seven years of tribulation, because we're a New Testament church. So the church has to be removed before the tribulation. Besides that, 
God has given the church over 2,000 plus years to get the job done and prepare Israel for the, for the tribulation period. He's given the church over 2,000 years. That's our time. We're living in our time right now. This is the church's time. It's New Testament time. And we should be doing something with it. Amen. Amen. We should be preparing this great harvest that's going to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. You know, I don't, I don't mean to be a party pooper or something, but how would you like to take off to meet the Lord in the air and leave your family behind? Leave your friends behind? That's why we got to do everything we could possibly do to get our family and friends into the kingdom before this rapture occurs. Because once the rapture occurs, anybody that's left down here, oh, there's going to be a church. There's going to be a great revival. People are going to wake up then, but they're going to have to go through at least part of the tribulation period, and it's not going to be nice for any of them. Amen? So this is the whole purpose of learning about the end times, is to stir us up. Get us, get, help us to get that two-minute warning mentality. To where we step it up. We don't sit back and wait. We don't start coasting in. Oh, it won't be long and we're out of here. No, this is a time for us to get proactive. This is a time for us to put it all in right now. Amen? Hallelujah. But anyway, the last seven years is for the Jews. And in that seven years, you don't have to worry about a revival. There's going to be a revival then. God is going to raise up 144,000 Born-again Jews, he's going he's gonna to save 144,000 Jews, get them born again, filled with the Spirit, 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000. And they're going to evangelize the world the way that the church should have evangelized it uh, the whole time. They're going to go out there and they're going to get the job done in a short period of time to the extent of getting half of the, the, the world's population saved. Half of the world's population in probably a year or less. That's what 144,000 pure, virgin, never been violated, uh, spiritually speaking, Jews can do in a short amount of time. Half the churches, half the earth's population is going to get saved. That's where Jesus said in Matthew 24, uh, two, will be left, two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other one left. Two and one, half. Half of the people in the world is going to be saved. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank God for that. Amen? Yes, amen? So anyway, I've shown you this morning, or tried to show you, just how accurate and precise the Word of God is. But now I want to show you, with the same standard of accuracy, the season when I believe the rapture will take place. Now, I know no man knows the day or hour, but God has given us signs. And the Bible gives us precise models pointing to Christ and the future of the church. And I've, I've taught on these before. But, for example, the Feast of the Lord. They are dress rehearsals for what was going to take place and already has and what is about to take place yet to come. And, and what I mean by that is, for example, the Feast of Passover happens in the spring of the year. It was when Jesus was sacrificed as the perfect Lamb of God. He was crucified on Calvary, on Passover. The Passover meal was celebrated by the Jews ever since the exodus out of Egypt, and it pointed to Jesus Christ being sacrificed 
and crucified on the cross. That was fulfilled perfectly. And right after that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread when Jesus was buried. The Jews to this day celebrate it without even really recognizing the meaning, but they'll take three pieces of bread, three pieces of matzah bread, and the one in the center they will pierce, break, and cover with a cloth representing the burial of Christ. That's not what it means to them, but that's what it means. The three pieces of matzah bread represent Father, Son, Holy Ghost. The one in the middle gets pierced with a fork, holes in it, and broken and covered up, representing the burial of Christ. He was buried exactly on the Feast of Passover. I mean, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's the bread of life that came down from heaven, and he was born in Bethlehem, which means city of bread. See how accurate God's word is? Then the Feast of first fruits. That's when Jesus was raised from the dead a few days later. He was the first one to be raised from the dead, spirit, soul, and body. Paul said, every man will be raised in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. That's us. But he was the first fruits. He was raised on the, the Feast of first fruits. Uh, after that, the Feast of Pentecost, which occurred in the summertime, 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit came, filled all the believers, empowered the church, and the church itself was born on that day. And we are still living in Pentecost right now. That, that prophecy has been partially fulfilled. But all those feasts are dress rehearsals for what has happened to this point. And there's still some to be fulfilled after the church's rapture. But here's the thing that gives me goosebumps. The next major event is going to be the Feast of Trumpets, which will occur in the fall of the year. It's coming up in October. And I believe the church will be raptured during the Feast of Trumpets because if the prophetic models of the first four feasts hold true, and they will... Then the, the fifth one, the Feast of Trumpets, will be just as true, just as accurate, just as precise. And I don't know the year. I'm not saying it's going to be raptured this fall. But when the church is raptured in the near future, it's going to be during the Feast of Trumpets. And, and of course, we won't be able to determine the year or hour, but we can determine very closely the almost to the day. Because when the Feast of Trumpets, it starts on the first full moon. And it's actually the 29.5th day, 29.5 days, 29 and a half days, and the Feast of Trumpets begins. But they used to send out, the Sanhedrin would send two witnesses out and say, is it a full moon yet? And they would come back and tell them when the full moon was. And they didn't know if it was going to be 29.5 or 30.5. But they would come back and say, it's a full moon. Boom, the trumpets would blow and the feast would start. Now watch this. This is what gives me goosebumps. <laughs> Hallelujah. Trumpets were used for a specific purpose all throughout the Old Testament. They would sound an alarm. They would call God's people uh, to an assembly. As a matter of fact, in, in Numbers 10, 2 through 4, it says, When the trumpets sound, they are for a, a gathering, an assembly, 
before the Lord. So when the trumpet sounds, all the people would gather, all the people of God would gather and they would assemble before the Lord. And, and, and back then it was before the temple or before uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the door of Moses, which represented the presence of God. And the people would gather together and assemble there in front of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 says, And I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together to him. Our gathering together to him. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17? There will be the shout of command, the archangel's voice, the sound of God's trumpet, and the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Those who have died believing in Christ will rise to life First, and we who are living at that time will be gathered up along with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. So the trumpets, now this is, this is really mind-blowing stuff here, but the trumpets were also used to announce the coronation of a new king. During the coronation, there were two ceremonies. The first one was private with dignitaries and people the king loved and trusted and whom loved and trusted the king. Nobody else was invited to that one because they didn't want the word to get out too soon because there could have been a rebellion and the king's family could have got killed and all of these things. So only the ones he trusted and loved and personally invited that he knew loved and trusted him went to that gathering, went to that coronation. The second ceremony was for everyone else. Once he was seated solidly by all the dignitaries and the politicians and everybody else and the ones that loved him and he loved, once he was seated and there's no doubt about his kingship, then there would be another ceremony with the rest of the world. So at the rapture of the church, he's going to be introduced to the church first as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then after that, seven years later, he's coming back with the church, and he's going to be introduced to the world as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ to the glory, uh, Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If that don't put goosebumps on your goosebumps, nothing will. Feast of Trumpets. That's what we're looking for now. That's the next thing we need to see is the Feast of Trumpets. Hallelujah. The Feast of Gatherings. Glory to God. Hallelujah. I don't know about y'all, but I done preached myself happy. Praise the Lord. I'll be going home happy today. But we're not going home yet. We have, we're going to receive communion this morning. So if you have your communion elements, get them ready. Hallelujah. Who's, who's serving communion? Pastor. Huh? Oh, yeah, that's right. We get our own. Everybody got one? So I'm telling you, I ain't accepting this new normal. This is not normal to me. We serve communion around here. Hallelujah. Well, if you didn't pick it up on the way in, go on out to the hall and get it. So we can all have it together. Uh, somebody getting Gwenny? Yeah. The old man out there. The old man. 
Thomas. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It takes a minute to get them open anyway. Did I get anybody excited about the rapture besides me? Yes. We're going to see the king face to face. Hallelujah. Yes. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I'm waiting until all the movement stops. I know everybody's got their elements open. <coughs> Praise the Lord. Gwenny, you got yours? You ready? Okay. Take your bread or cracker or wafer or whatever it is you're using at home this morning on Facebook. And uh, we find instructions for the communion or what's called the Last Supper in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. Paul says, uh, let me see here. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. Paul obviously received instruction after the death of the Lord because he didn't even get born again or filled with the Holy Ghost till after Jesus was uh, crucified and salvation was wrought for every mankind. And then he says uh, he had a revelation from Jesus and Jesus explained to him, gave him some inside information on the Last Supper or what the communion supper meant. And Paul said, on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus, the Lord, Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is our pattern, uh, our blueprint for receiving communion. And so he said that he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces. And that's why we do it the way that we do it. Father, we thank you for what this wafer, this bread, this cracker represents, the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body that was whipped at the whipping post for our healing, the body that was nailed to the cross and crucified, and the bloodshed for our salvation. We're so appreciative of everything that was done in that body, even including his ministry on the earth before he was whipped and before he was crucified. We're so thankful and so appreciative of it. We thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Break and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper ended, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. He's talking about the new and better covenant based upon better promises, because this one was not based on the blood of bulls and goats like the old covenant was, but this one was based on the blood of the uh, 
perfect and sinless Lamb of God who sacrificed Himself for our sin uh, on the cross at Calvary. That's the blood that drained out of the body of Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you and praise you for this blood. You said without the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Your blood had to be shed, and you took it into the Holy of Holies in heaven, presented it on the altar of God in the holy place in heaven, and not only presented it there, but you sanctified the New Testament and the whole Holy of Holies in heaven with your own precious blood. We recognize that. We appreciate it. We know that we couldn't be saved without it. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Take and drink. <clears throat> Hallelujah. That baby was fermented. <laughs> Hallelujah. I better wrap this up before I get a buzz. <laughs> Let's check the date on that, Pastor. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's so good to receive communion. You know, I know it's only a symbolic gesture, and, you know, these, these are just elements that represent the body and blood of Christ. But I tell you what, I just feel different after I receive communion every time that we do it. I know uh, our Catholic friends do it every week, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to do it every week. Amen. It keeps you in remembrance even more than we're kept in remembrance by doing it once a month. But, uh, and I used to do it that way, but I always enjoy communion. It means a lot to me. And, and like I said, there's nothing magical about it, but it makes me feel different. Hallelujah. I feel better after it. Amen? Yeah. Well, God bless you. We love you and appreciate you. Facebook, thanks for tuning in. If you thought this was a good message today, go ahead and hit the share button and send it to your friends and that. And we'll see you on Wednesday. God bless you. We love you. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.